Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. As we continue our study from the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, our Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21. Christ said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. When Julie and I were dating, we were driving from Memphis, Tennessee and on Interstate 40 in the direction of Little Rock, Arkansas to attend her grandmother's funeral. I was passing a vehicle on the interstate and was probably a little distracted by the beautiful young lady sitting beside me and so probably wasn't passing fast enough. When I suddenly looked in the rearview mirror and saw this tractor trailer rig bearing down on me. It, it raced up at about 100 miles an hour and got about six inches from my back bumper. I thought it was going to hit me. So I punched the accelerator, passed the car, got over in the right-hand lane. The tractor trailer rig began to pass me, but as soon as we were side by side, he began to swerve his truck over, forcing me off the road. At first I thought he was just an inattentive driver, but it happened again and again until finally he was past me. And then when he was almost past me, he swerved all the way over, would have struck the car had I not braked hard, almost getting hit by the vehicle behind me. I'd begun to suspect that he was doing this on purpose. Once he got in front of me, he dropped his speed down to about 40 miles an hour on the interstate. And I thought, well, that's odd. He was obviously in a really big hurry. Why did he suddenly slow down? And he kept on with that 40 miles an hour until I realized if we don't pass him, we're probably going to be late to the funeral. So I began to ease around him. But as soon as I would get to his side, he would swerve over and drive me to the shoulder of the road again. And then he would stick his arm out the window and wave like this if it's, as, oh, I'm sorry, it was an accident. You can come now. But when I would attempt, he would swerve again. 
And it became so obvious at this time that he was doing it on purpose that I backed off. We began to write down his tag number so that we could report him to the highway patrol, at which point he punches the accelerator and at about 110, 120 miles an hour, races off into the distance and quickly disappears. We had our first experience with what is now a nationwide phenomenon, road rage. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, in one year's time, there were 41,000 traffic fatalities in the U.S. and two-thirds of them were related to road rage. Two-thirds of the deaths on American highways. Between 2011 and 2015, there were 55 accidents caused by road rage in North Carolina alone. Fatal accidents involving road rage increased tenfold, that is by 1,000% since 2004. We saw a dramatic escalation in road rage back in 2021. And that one year alone, there was a death from road rage on American highways every 18 hours. We actually saw the number of deaths from road rage double in a single year's time. Road rage shootings doubled this year compared to last year alone. Rage has become one of the buzzwords of our generation as our nation continues its nosedive toward barbarism, we are losing all civility, we're losing all patience, we are losing all self-control, and our rage is costing people their lives. It's become so common that we just read the headline and then move on when we discover that someone in our neighborhood got frustrated behind the wheel and killed another motorist or a pedestrian or a frustrated employee walked in heavily armed and mowed down his fellow employees or an angry student walked into a school and cut down faculty and students that had offended them in some way. This has become the way of the world. But the way of the world is not the way of Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples are to be characterized by gentleness, by kindness, meekness, peaceableness, self-control. We are to be people who know how to conquer our anger and respond to conflict in ways that are constructive rather than destructive. And the Lord Jesus demands that of his disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. This is a direct quotation of Exodus 20:13 and Deuteronomy 5, 17. And then Christ goes on to summarize what the Old Testament law said about the penalty for murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
You commit murder, you're to be placed on trial, and if found guilty, sentenced to death. Yes, the Bible affirms capital punishment. This is Exodus 21:12, Leviticus 24:17, Numbers 35:12, Deuteronomy 17:8 through 13. When Christ says libel to judgment, he's talking about libel to judgment by the greater Sanhedrin. Essentially, the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, consisting of 71 members, 70 council members, plus the high priest, which had the authority to sentence the guilty to death. But Christ then goes on to reveal the intention of the Father's heart when he made this prohibition against murder. And the point that Christ is making is when God said, you shall not murder. He didn't just intend to prohibit the actual act of murder. He intended to prohibit everything that leads up to that act. Not just murderous actions, but murderous attitudes as well. The very posture of the heart that leads to murder, that is forbidden too. And so Christ went on to very explicitly prohibit the kind of anger that can escalate to the point of murder if we don't respond properly to it. Of the things we can learn from this passage, we should first of all learn to recognize the heinousness of our anger. In other words, we must take our anger very, very seriously because Christ does. Christ says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What is this anger that the Lord Jesus is prohibiting? Is he saying that all anger is wrong? Obviously not. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's wrong not to be angry. In the face of evil, in the face of injustice, anger can be fully justified. The kind of anger that the Lord Jesus is prohibiting here has several distinct characteristics. First of all, the anger that Jesus prohibited is intense. There are several different words that are used in the Greek language of the New Testament to express anger. And some of these terms vary significantly in their intensity. There are words like thumos, which refers to being aggravated, being frustrated. But the word that Christ uses here, the verb orgizo, related noun orge, speaks of intense fury. In fact, we could probably better translate this, be wrathful. Because Christ is talking here about an intense rage that is a prelude to destructive behavior. That's the way the Gospel of Matthew always uses Orge or Gizo and that word group. For example, in Matthew 18:34, this word describes the anger of a king at a servant's hypocrisy. And as an expression of that anger, the king sends the servant to prison 
to be tortured forever and ever. See the same word in Matthew 22, 7, where it describes the rage of a king against those who had murdered his servants. And not only does he destroy those murderers, he sends his representatives in to burn their entire city to the ground. This is the same word that's used in the New Testament to speak of the wrath of God. God's intense rage, his fury against human sin and rebellion, which ultimately will lead to a violent response. God's destruction of the wicked and his sentencing them to eternal punishment. So here's my point. When Christ forbids this anger, he's not talking about the minor irritations that we face in day-to-day life. He is instead talking about harboring an intense fury that if left unchecked will lead to violence and destruction. The ancient writers recognized this. We can look at the early church fathers and other Greek writers as they contrast the different terms for angers, and we'll read people like Origen say this. Thumos, that word for minor irritation, differs from orge, the word group that we find here in Matthew, in that thumos is anger that rises up quickly and then dissipates. But wrath, this word for rage that we encounter here, possesses a yearning for revenge. Another early church father, Jerome, said Thumas is just anger in its early stages, its displeasure. But if allowed to ferment in the mind, it grows to long for revenge and desires to injure those who are thought to have caused the harm. Diogenes Laertes, a Stoic, defined this word as a desire for revenge on those who seem to have caused injury wrongfully. St. Gregory says that this word speaks of enduring rage. Theodoret said that when these two words occur together, thumos is anger that burns brightly for a moment and then goes away But orge, this word for wrath, speaks of a growing, abiding rage that strengthens the longer it lasts. So the anger that the Lord Jesus is prohibiting here is intense. All of us are going to be frustrated and aggravated by some of the situations that we encounter in daily life. Christ is not saying that that deserves the kind of punishment that he lays out for us here. But flying off the handle, an intense rage that leads us to lose control, that is what Christ explicitly prohibits. Where does our little idiom fly off the handle even come from? Well, it's the image of somebody who is trying to split wood with an axe and the wedge hasn't been driven deeply enough into the end of the axe handle and so that axe head works its way loose every time you strike the firewood until finally you swing it and the axe head flies off the handle spinning through the air 
destined to slaughter and destroy any who are in its path. Flying off the handle is an image of losing control in a way that results in injury to others. And it's flying off the handle that the Lord Jesus is describing here. But not only is the anger that Jesus prohibited intense, it is escalating and enduring. You probably heard that again and again in some of the definitions from the early church fathers of this Greek term that I read. But even if that weren't latent within the meaning of the word itself, it's implied by the grammatical form that Matthew uses. He uses a present participle which is progressive in nature. And so what Christ is saying, but I say that everyone who keeps on being angry with his brother. And the idea is that the anger is abiding It is continual, it is habitual, until anger begins to characterize the person, it becomes a part of who they are. And it's clear that one of the things Christ is prohibiting here is an ongoing, continuous anger, because in verse 25, he will explicitly say, you've got to learn to agree with your adversaries quickly not harboring the anger and resentment, but seeking to resolve it at first opportunity. Christ knows that harboring anger and resentment poisons your soul. It will rot your very life from the inside out. I saw a vivid image of this in my very first pastorate. I started pastoring a little country church in northeast Mississippi when I was 19 years old. And on my first Sunday, the church had a fellowship meal for me. And uh, it was supposed to be dinners on the ground, but we couldn't go out on the grounds because it was raining torrents. While I was standing in line waiting to get up to the table, one of the deacons pulled me over to the side and took me to the window of the fellowship hall and said, look out there. And there was a little lady sitting in the trunk of her Cadillac, eating her fellowship meal in the pouring down rain. I said, what's wrong with her? I wanted to go out there and grab her by the arm and lead her back in. He said, oh, no, no, you need to leave her alone. That's just Ms. And he gave her name, and he said, here's the story. When we wanted to build this fellowship, Paul, we had two different sets of plans that had been offered us by the architect. And we had a business meeting to decide between the two plans, and everybody else in the church wanted to approve this plan, but this lady wanted to approve the other plan. And since she had given a generous amount of money, she thought that she ought to be able to make the final decision single-handedly. And when she saw that the church wanted to approve the other set of plans, she said, if you choose this plan, I will never sit foot in this fellowship hall. And he said, that's her keeping her promise. Rain, sun, sleet, or snow. That little lady would sit in the trunk of her Cadillac, eating her fellowship meal alone. 
And I saw the bitterness of that lady who at one time had been a kind and sweet lady poison her soul until she was so bitter and so ugly to everybody who crossed her path that everybody learned to just stay away. Practice avoidance. I think that her anger and bitterness literally drove her mad. Although that she was a, a wealthy lady, it would only be a couple of years after this that you would see her wandering the road with a stick with the nail through the end, picking up tin cans and, and putting them in her bag to go off and sell them at, as if she needed money uh, when she was lavishly wealthy. Tragically, she died very sad, very alone, mad at the world and with most in the world, furious with her. Christ says, don't be that lady. <laughs> when you begin to experience this kind of seething rage, you must conquer it or it may poison your soul and transform you into a person you do not want to become. Christ prohibits anger that's focused on a spiritual brother. He says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, and the term here is gender inclusive, so it's not just talking about the men in the church, it's talking about the ladies too. But here, brother clearly speaks of a spiritual sibling. Not just your blood brother or blood sister, but your spiritual brothers and sisters, that is your fellow disciples of Jesus Christ. Repeatedly in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will refer to God as our heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father. That means that I am a child of God and you are a child of God if you're one who has repented of your sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are both children of God, that not only says something about how we relate to Him and He relates to us, that says something about how we are to relate to each other. As God's my father and God is your father, you and I are brothers or sisters. That's just the way it works. And Christ says that we need to be very, very careful about how we relate to our spiritual brothers and sisters. Now, please understand, Christ isn't giving us permission here to be violently angry with anyone who's not a Christian. Now, he expects us to treat all people with kindness and patience and forgiveness. But what he is teaching is that we have an even higher obligation to relate with grace and compassion to our spiritual siblings. That's going to become clear a little bit later in Matthew 25, verse 40, where the Lord Jesus teaches that when we appear before the Lord on judgment day, his verdict is going to depend on how we have treated, quote, one of the least of these, my brothers. That is how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Is Christ saying that being kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ earns salvation? No. 
But he's saying how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ tells us a lot about our true spiritual condition. Whether or not we are truly the disciples of the Lord Jesus that we claim to be. The Heavenly Father is concerned about how we treat all people, but He is especially concerned about how we treat our spiritual brothers and sisters. That shouldn't surprise us. Many of us in the room are fathers. We don't like to see any child mistreated or bullied. But if we see our own children being mistreated or bullied, that's an entirely different category, isn't it? Because of our special relationship to them. I'm embarrassed to even admit it, but when we were missionaries in Romania, there was a boy at my daughter's school who kept bullying her. And uh, the school wasn't really doing anything to take care of it, so I took matters in my own hands. And when I dropped my daughter off at school, I saw the boy and I called him over and I said, hey, I expect you to treat my daughter with respect. Yes, sir, he said, but he didn't mean it. Because that afternoon, when I drove up to pick her up from school, he had her pinned to the wall and was about to hit her. Now, in Romania, for the protection of the children, there are gates and iron bars surrounding the school courtyard. I still don't know how I got over that fence. I don't know if I ran around and went through the gate. I don't know if I leapt over the fence. I don't know. But the next thing I know, I was standing in that boy's face telling him I better never see him lay hands on my daughter again. And he never did from that day forward. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness. I could have gotten in big trouble with school authorities over taking matters into my own hands that way, but that's what dads do, right? You mistreat our children and wrath may be stirred. And what the Lord Jesus is reminding us here is your spiritual siblings are sons and daughters of God. And he cares about how you treat all people, but he especially cares about how you treat his other children. And so Christ warns that if we mistreat them, we will answer to him. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Do you hear that confirmation? We're to be kind to all people. We're to do good to all people, but especially those who belong to the family of God because of their unique relationship to God the Father how we treat them matters most to him. The anger that Jesus prohibited is intense. The anger is escalating and enduring. The anger is focused on a spiritual brother. And then Christ describes this anger as one that grows and intensifies. 
In verse 22, he talks about a progression in the way we express our anger. And he explains that the penalty increases with each escalation. The anger moves from just emotion to verbal expression to more intense verbal expression. And then if not checked, would ultimately lead to a violent act. It starts with the wrath, but then it proceeds when we insult our brother. The original text says that we call our brother rakah, which in Aramaic means stupid, dimwit, empty head. In other words, we're insulting someone's intelligence. Not a kind thing to do definitely should be avoided but then look what happens next that expression of anger hasn't brought satisfaction the anger has only grown and intensified so now the person calls their brother you fool and some people think that the word fool is just synonymous with rakah stupid or dimwit but no it's not the word fool is used in scripture not so much to speak of someone's intellect or lack of it as it is their spiritual condition. After all, the psalmist doesn't say the fool has said in his heart two plus two equals five. He says instead the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. And why does the fool say in his heart there is no God? Because he doesn't want a personal creator God to interfere with how he wants to live his life. So he denies the existence of God to excuse his sin and immorality. The fool is someone who lives in rebellion against the Almighty. And a similar thing happens in the Gospel of Matthew. Again and again, the word fool is used to speak of those who do not belong to the kingdom. Matthew 7, 26, 23, 17, Matthew 25, verses 2, 3, and 8. The word fool speaks of those who deny the Lord Jesus, who refuse to submit to his teaching, and who are bound for eternal punishment. So when you call your brother fool, you're calling them unregenerate. You're calling them unsaved. You're denying the fact that they too are children of God. You're consigning them to hell. And the Lord Jesus says there are varied penalties that are deserving for these different intensities and expressions of anger. He says, if you just have that inner wrath, then you are liable to judgment. And there he's speaking of the judgment for the local Sanhedrin, a, a local court consisting of 23 council members. That he says, if, if you call your brother dimwit, stupid, then you're liable to the judgment of the greater Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the land of Israel that had the authority to issue the death sentence. But then he said, if you say to your brother, you fool, denying their salvation 
not because they lack evidence of their salvation, but just as an expression of your rage against them. And you are deserving of the hell of fire, Christ says. Uh, what's his point? Anger that is allowed to grow and escalate in its intensity to become more and more severe is more and more dangerous. The longer we allow it to fester, the greater the penalty we deserve. And so, it is important to stop the process at the very beginning and not allow the anger to boil. We see almost every day the kind of thing that the Lord Jesus is talking about, don't we? Uh, the whole progress of anger taking over. Think of two little children who get to a fuss on the playground. First of all, they might exchange words like dummy, stupid. Goes back and forth, escalating until the next thing you know, it's I hate you. I wish you were dead. What just took place? Well, the very thing that the Lord Jesus is warning about. How ordinary anger can boil up and intensify until it becomes a murderous rage. When you say, I hate you, I wish you were dead, anger has ceased to be a minor irritation and it has become a murderous attitude, the very condition of the heart that leads, if unchecked, to the murderous act. Dateline NBC aired not long ago a program called Murder for Hire. It was about a respected Mormon real estate broker whose wife confessed that she had been unfaithful to him. She was repentant. She profusely apologized. She begged for his forgiveness. She agreed to go to marital counseling, do whatever it takes to keep the marriage together. But the husband refused to forgive. His anger festered until it became sheer hatred. At one point in their marital counseling, the counselor said, if your wife slit her own throat, would that satisfy you? Would that be punishment enough? Could you let it go then? And he said, no, that wouldn't be enough for me. It was only a few months after that counseling session that he would end up in a hotel room with a person he thought was a hired hitman, but was actually an undercover police officer as part of a sting. And he offered the person he thought was a hitman $1,000 to kill his wife. The sting was taped by law enforcement and was replayed on the program. And at one point, as the husband speaks to the hired hitman, he says, I would never have thought that things would go this far. He added, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. It was completely out of character for him, but he had allowed anger to fester and foment until it turned him into a monster. And what Christ is warning here is that it could happen to any one of us. 
rage, and bitterness make us ugly. So we must learn to deal with them in its earliest stages. Christ goes on to call us to recognize the importance of dealing with our anger. He reminds us that the proper condition of the heart is essential to true, meaningful Christian worship. The worship context that he describes is an Israelite who's gone to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem and is presenting an atoning sacrifice on the altar. And while they're there, they remember that they have sinned against their brother or sister and they've not made it right. Our translations say, you there remember that your brother has something against you. And when we read that in English, we might think it merely means, well, they're offended, but they had no cause to be. That's not what's going on here. Christ is describing a scenario in which you've actually sinned against your brother and, or sister, and you've not sought reconciliation with them, you've not apologized, you've not sought to make restitution. Christ says, if that comes to your mind when you are in the middle of offering the sacrifice, then you leave your sacrifice at the foot of the altar and you race to that brother or sister and you do your best to make things right. You repent before them. You seek to make restitution to them. Uh, it's shocking that Christ would say that for two reasons. First of all, the offering of sacrifice was such a solemn act. Nothing but the most extenuating circumstances was to interrupt it. But secondly, it's shocking because most of the people who are listening to Jesus preach are Galileans. And if they're in Judea, in Jerusalem, offering their sacrifice, it means they've got to leave their animal at the foot of the altar, travel a hundred miles back to wherever they live in Galilee to try to make things right with their brother, then turn right back around and travel back to Jerusalem to complete the sacrificial act. It, it would have sounded so extreme as to be ridiculous to the ears of most people. But Christ teaches this for very good reason. Leviticus 6 and Numbers 5 taught that before a worshiper offered a sacrifice to seek atonement for some sin they had committed against somebody else, they were first to go to that person they sinned against. Repent, apologize, and make restitution. And if they had not, God would not accept the sacrifice. What Christ is telling us is that it does no good to kneel before God and say, Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry for the way I've sinned against my brother. If we are not also willing to go to that brother or sister and profusely apologize for however we have sinned against them, and seek to do what is necessary to make things right. What Christ is teaching is that broken fellowship between spiritual brothers and sisters also hinders our fellowship 
with the Father. The Apostle Peter teaches that in his epistles. He says, husbands, you need to do your best to to make things right in your relationship with your wife. Do you remember why? He says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Sometimes when it seems our prayers aren't getting above the ceiling, it's because they're not getting above the ceiling. Else we're not treating our wife right or we're not treating our husband right. And the same applies when we're not treating our brothers and sisters right. And not only does Christ urge us to recognize the importance of dealing with our anger, he calls for us to recognize the urgency of dealing with our anger. This is not something to be postponed or delayed. It's something to be addressed now. And Christ illustrates that using a scene from the legal world. In verse 25, he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's important to know that although frivolous lawsuits uh, are a common part of our legal system now in the United States, they didn't occur in ancient Israel. I don't have all the reasons to, ex- time to explain all the reasons why, but they didn't occur. Somebody filed suit against you, it was serious, and you had almost certainly injured them in some way. Notice that the whole assumption is that the accusation is a valid one because Christ says if it goes to court, the judge is going to condemn you and he's going to sentence you, hand you over to the guard. You'll be put in prison. So this isn't an illegitimate suit brought against someone who's actually innocent. Christ is describing a scenario in which we have actually sinned against someone else, harmed them in some way, and we are being called to account in a legal suit. Christ says everybody knows the smart way to respond to that situation. Every attorney will tell you when you're guilty and when you are liable, the smartest thing for you to do is to make an out-of-court settlement before things ever go to the court. Why? Because the longer you fuss and fight when you are truly guilty, the angrier your opponent's going to get, the more heinous the offense will be in the eyes of the judge, and the penalty will be all the more severe. And Christ is saying when we've sinned some way against our brother and sister, the same principle operates. Don't wait till you stand before the judge to make it right. Reach an out-of-court settlement, which means go to that brother and sister. Apologize to them. If possible, seek to make restitution. But the point is, settle things before the anger escalates, before words are spoken that can never be taken back. Before wounds are inflicted, what will be very painful and slow to heal. 
What Christ is teaching is the very same principle that the proverb describes, that Paul described when he said, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath while you are still angry. Now, of all of the things that Christ should have begun his ethical portion of the Sermon on the Mount with, it seems a little odd, don't you think, that he would focus on this one? Why in the world would not controlling our temper, why in the world would anger be so important that he chooses to address it first in this ethical section of the Sermon on the Mount? Christ knows well what destruction and devastation anger can bring about. Churches are being destroyed today because of unchecked anger. Families are being destroyed today because of unchecked anger. Lives are being lost today because of unchecked anger. But another reason that Christ focuses on this first in this ethical section is because of one of the factors that we discussed just last week. Remember, in verse 20, Christ said that his disciples should have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And I argue then that one of the distinctions between Christian righteousness and that of the scribes and Pharisees is that the scribes and Pharisees were focused simply on keeping the letter of the commandments of God. But Christ raises the bar and he urges his disciples to emulate the very character of God. We're going to see that in the final verses of this chapter when Christ says, you're to love your enemies. Despite what the scribes and Pharisees are saying, they say, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. No, I say to you, love your enemies. And his main argument is that's what God does. He causes his rain to fall and water the crops of the good and even the wicked. He causes his sun to shine and bless the crops. Not just of the righteous, but even of the unrighteous. And what Christ is saying is, if your heavenly Father shows that kind of love to his enemies, you, as his sons and daughters by faith, must show love to your enemies as well. The principle is that of spiritual genetics. Like father, like son. When we were born again, when we experienced the new birth, God imparted his own character to us as our heavenly father. And because of the principle, like father, like son, like parent, like child, we are to be loving, we are to be compassionate, we are to be forgiving, and we are to restrain our anger. The most important description of the character of God in all of the Old Testament is in Exodus 34, 6, where God describes himself as, quote, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If we had to summarize the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount in a single verse, this would be it. The Sermon on the Mount is calling us to exhibit the character of our Heavenly Father, which is so vividly described in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6 is one of those pivotal verses of the Old Testament that's not only quoted once by later Old Testament authors, but again and again. It's quoted in Numbers 14, 18, in Psalm 78, 38, in Jeremiah 15, 15, in Jonah 4, 2. Anytime the Old Testament wants to summarize the character of the Heavenly Father, it uses this description. And this should be an apt description of our lives and character as well. Are we compassionate and gracious? Are we slow to anger? Are we abounding in love and faithfulness? Are we forgiving? If not, then how can we pretend to be the very sons and daughters of God? Galatians 5.19 describes for us the works of the flesh that are inconsistent with Christian character. It's interesting to look at the list closely because among them are enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all of the motivations for anger that Jesus prohibits here in the Sermon on the Mount. But contrast that with the fruits of the Spirit, the kind of character that the indwelling Spirit produces in the life of the believer. The fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and those are the very characteristics that stifle our anger and prevent it from raging out of control. Here's my point. If we want to conquer anger, it's not a matter of taking a pill or attending an anger management class or seeking a psychological diagnosis the key to conquering anger is ultimately having a right relationship to God through the Lord Jesus. God loves his enemies. He is kind and patient even to those who rebel against him, defy his authority and sin contrary to his commandments. And in that great love, he sent to us Jesus Christ, the holy, perfect Son of God, to live the righteous life we can't live, then go to the cross and be punished for our sins in our place so that we can escape the punishment that we rightly deserve. Though God's wrath is righteous and just, and His compassion, He withholds His wrath, and he acts mercifully and graciously to protect the sinner from his wrath. 
Because the Lord Jesus died for our sins in our place, we can escape that wrath of God that we rightly deserve. We can be fully and completely forgiven. We can spend eternity with him in blessings that defy imagination. And our lives can be changed. People who are hateful can become loving. People who are full of rage can be tamed and become gentle and kind because of the transforming power of the gospel. When we repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not just forgiven, we are transformed. And the very character of the heavenly Father is imparted to us so that we, like him, become compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Are you angry and mean? And if so, are you just brushing that aside and excusing it? Well, that's just the way I was raised, or I have a condition, or if people had been what I've been through, they'd be angry too. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there is no excuse for the anger that lashes out and inflicts hurt. What I'm asking you to do today is inspect the condition of your soul. And ask yourself, has the loving, gracious, compassionate, gentle, forgiving character of the Father been imparted to me? And is it evident in my life to those who are around me? And if not, there is a remedy. Repent and trust the Lord Jesus to forgive and to transform. Bitterness can turn nice people into monsters. Grace can turn monsters into really nice people. Ask Jesus to perform that transforming miracle in your life now. Father, we realize that we live in a day when people hear the very word Christian. They think of people who are angry and mean, and that is heartbreaking. So far from you and your character and so far from what we should be exhibiting to the world. Lord, even as we stand for what is right and true, Help us to do it with the love of Christ. And as people see the character 
that belongs to you manifest in our lives, we pray that it would be a powerful witness that would stir their interest in the gospel as well. In Jesus' name, amen.